Amen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here as well. We continue this morning in a series that we've been doing this summer from Second uh, Peter chapter 1. And so if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn there, we're going to read again the verses that we've been reading every week. But from there, we're going to jump to Ephesians chapter 4. And then also, uh, we're going to read one verse from 1 Corinthians 13, because as we'll see, we've made our, our way all the way down to uh, where Peter tells us that we need brotherly affection for one another. And so from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, and then we'll, we'll go to the other passages. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then from Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll pay attention to how uh, close the language is here to the language of Second Peter 1. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then just from 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things. It endures all things. This is God's word. Now, this Ephesians 4 passage clearly describes the change that we've been discussing this summer. The divine power that Peter refers to there that makes us partakers of God's nature so that we escape the corruption that is in this world. And then the language is strikingly similar, as I said, to 2 Peter 1. That if you believe in Jesus, you're united to him by faith. And what happens is that he makes you new, and then he sends the new you into the world to make all things new. There's an old self, Paul says, that's put off a former way of life filled with epithumia, these out-of-control desires there in verse 22 of Ephesians 4, but also in 2 Peter 1. And then there's the new self. 
he talks about that is in the likeness of God, verse 24. And the Greek there is means according to God. That's literally what, it, in other words, it's the same idea as in 2 Peter 1 again, that you get recoded uh, when you become a Christian, you get recoded with God's DNA. You get recreated. And so that if you're a Christian, you're not the you you used to be. Not just because of conversion. Conversion is the point in your life when you pass from death to life, the new birth, John chapter 3, right? Uh, but, but even after that, everything that flows from that, and sometimes it takes a whole lifetime even for the new life to overcome all of the old deadness. But the word renewed... Verse 23 of Ephesians 4 is really important. Do you see it there? It's you're not the you you used to be, right? It's why those visuals are so powerful that Sean showed of all of the places that there's the before and the after. If you're a Christian, you have a before and an after. Now that after is still being worked out, okay? It's not completely done yet. The renovation project is still ongoing and will be until you go to be with Jesus. But the verse renewed in verse 23, it's a present pact of present passive infinitive verb which probably doesn't why does that matter well think about those parts for just a minute it's a passive verb which means it's something that's it refers to something that's being done to you you're being renewed the renewal is not something you do it's being done to you from something outside of you has come and is making you new it's present which means it's not just something that happened sometime way back when no it's something that's going on right now today not in the past moment by moment incrementally as you go along and then it's an infinitive verb which means that there's no end or limit to the work that God is doing in your life it will go on forever and ever and ever which is why Peter says if you have these qualities that he's describing here in second Peter chapter one and if they're increasing because we never get there. You with me? You know that? We never arrive and say, whew, I'm glad I'm done with that. Now I can move on to something else. No, these things have to come in and they have to be increasing. God never stops working on us. But let me just, by way of introduction, just a couple of things from, from this text. The first thing is just to remind you of, of this. You're well-equipped. Peter says you have everything you need for life and godliness. You don't have to stay trapped in old habits. You can break through, not without a lot of hard work, but if you're angry, if just this settled sense of anger because of something that's happened in your life, you don't have to stay angry unless you just want to be angry, which some people do, because it's hard to let go of that. If you're, if you're grieving because of some terrible thing that's happened in your life, you can grieve, and the scripture says grieve, but it also says you can grieve, but eventually your faith will win out and hope will begin to break through. If you want change, if you want to change, you can. That'll probably be slow. Your circumstances might not change. That, there's no promise of that, but you can. You can change. God can do that work, and that's the first thing. But the second thing is, remember, that the interchange, this interchange that Peter's describing with these words, these qualities here in Second Peter 1, that this interchange is the key to a happy, fruitful, productive life. Do you see the words... I'm bouncing back and forth, I realize, but in verse 24 of Ephesians 4, the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Those words don't just describe a religious person. They characterize the conditions that fit our humanity. So no matter where you fall on the spectrum of belief this morning, Peter is showing you the way toward a life that works, a life that is whole, that, that meets the demands of what it means for you to be made in the image of God. And it's the stuff on the inside that matters. If you have the right stuff in here, 
then what's going on in here can actually get out and begin to change things in you and not only in you but in others as well. So these qualities that we've been looking at this summer, faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness. And then the very next thing as we've gone along every week taking one of these, Peter mentions down in verse 7, uh, godliness, add to your godliness or supplement your godliness with brotherly affection. The word there is Philadelphion, Philadelphia, which is the city, city ironically, called the city of brotherly love. Um, it, it literally is the word love for brother. Now, it seems to be out of place with the rest of the qualities in Peter's list for a little bit. But let me, you know, let me just say this, though. Can you imagine a person who has all of the things he's been talking about, who has faith and virtue and godliness and self-control and knowledge and steadfastness and all of these things, but does not have love. That's not the kind of person you want to be. In other words, the first, the top half of the list can really create a sense of sternness and eagerness and drive in somebody that needs to be tempered by the last two things he mentions here, I think. And so I'm grateful that he goes on to brotherly love and then next week, or brotherly affection and next week, love. But also this, think about, we've been talking about this change from the inside out. But consider that friendship between people, community, that really works and can do the kinds of things in a place like Sean's trying to do and, and all of, and his family and his, and, and his workers are trying to do in a place like Winter Haven. Friendship that becomes a powerful force in a community is created by the inner dynamic of the friends towards one another. And secondly, those kinds of friendships change the world. They really do. Friendships change the world. Uh, there was a book, and I'm not going to remember the man's name, uh, but he was a writer for, a Christian, or for a Christianity Today and a pretty prolific writer, and he wrote a long book about just what it would look like for us to um, be faithful in our cultural engagement. And he wrote 300 pages, and at the very end of the book, his one application was just learn how to be a good friend because friends change the world. So this is not a sermon about friendship, though. It's a sermon about the inner dynamics of the heart that create friendships. And we say this all the time. If you want friends, be a friend. You don't find community, right? You don't, you don't find friendship. It doesn't just fall into your lap. If you feel lonely and you look around or on social media and you see other people that seem to have good friends, it didn't just happen for them either. You don't, you don't find friendship. You have to create it through kindness. And so ultimately, a Christian is a person who is proactive, not reactive, because of this massive work that God is doing in them. They take the initiative because they're living, right? This is the promise. We're living. We can live from an, an abundance of inner resources of love and courage and patience. And these are ours because of the way that God has acted towards us. So you read a text like Luke 6, verses 37 and 38. I wish I had thought to put them on the screen for you, but you read it at first, you might be prone to misunderstand what's being said. Here's what Jesus says. He says, condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given back to you for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, what does all that mean? Well, it means if you're in a relationship where there's conflict and it's tense, then you have a choice. If you hold a grudge, as it's so easy to do, if you, if you just hold a grudge, then it's going to stay tense. But if you forgive, what happens when you forgive is it unleashes a kind of dynamic that changes the relationship. Forgiveness invites forgiveness. 
Generosity from you towards others creates generosity in them, not only towards you, but towards others and so on. But you have to go first. You have to act from the way you're being acted on internally by the Spirit of God, if you're a believer, and not on the way you're being acted toward externally by the other person. See? If you do that, you can actually change the external reality. I mean, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? It means that you step into conflict with a peaceful heart, and from the peace within you, you're able to bring peace to the situation. It, you know, your peace can even de-escalate things and make the other person peaceful. That's the kind of thing we're talking about, do you see? That's the kind of people that Peter says it's possible for us to be because of what God is doing in us. And so we come to this topic of brotherly affection here um, from Ephesians chapter 4. And here's what we want to see. We just want to ask three questions, kind of our normal routine. You'll see they're the three points of the outline that I've given to you, but there are three B's this morning, so maybe you can remember uh, from that way. We want to talk about brotherly affection, and then its opposite, bitterness, and then the solution uh, to living with brotherly affection and not bitterness, which is the beauty of Jesus. And so brotherly affection, what does it mean? What is it? What's the obstacle to it? And how do you do it? How do you live in brotherly affection towards people instead of in bitterness, which is so easy to do. So let's just walk through the text together in those three headings. First, with just talking about what brotherly affection is, what Paul means here. And it's interesting. The ESV translates the word this way, even though it literally means brother love. Uh, the word affection is not present. And so what the commentators are doing is they're, they're, they're uh, interpreting the word a little bit. And they're saying that what the kind of love that Paul or that Peter refers to here is a love that is implied in the way the Bible uses the word brother. Now, don't get knotted up about brother. Brother, sister, it's a family word, okay? It's a familial dynamic that we're after here. But just for ease, we'll use brother because Peter used brother as well, and the Bible does in many, in many cases. It describes the recognition, <clears throat> excuse me, within the covenant community of the unique obligations and commitments that we have to one another. So the love of Jews for Jews or in our case, the love of Christians for Christians, which should not be something mechanical, but intentional. We should feel closer, this is gonna be hard, okay? We should feel closer to African Christians than we do to other Americans who do not believe the way we do because we are brothers and sisters with African Christians who share our faith, but not with those who share our culture, but not our faith. So the word affection refers to loyalty and commitment and to the benefit of the doubt that you give to family. C.S. Lewis, who wrote a book called The Four Loves, and uh, the first love that he dealt with in that book, it's a really good book, you ought to read it, uh, he, it's, he dealt with affection. And he called affection an appreciative love. Here's what he said. He said, affection is an affair of old clothes and ease, he wrote. In other words, we should feel comfortable and safe and at home with one another. We should be able to relax and just be ourselves because of the ease and the comfortableness of our, of our relationship and love for one another. That's what Paul aims us at, Ephesians 4. Now, I want to piece the verses together just a little bit to give you as full and as clear a picture as possible of what brotherly affection looks like. So let's go down and begin at the end of the passage in verse 32 where he, he sums up everything that he said in Ephesians 4 with, with this one verse, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ 
forgave you. And so the word kind there, which starts the sentence, is the big idea. It's in the place of prominence. And it is the whole of the rest of the parts of what the apostle is calling us to. Kindness is a synonym for brotherly love and affection. It refers to something, literally the word does, something that is soft and comforting, like Lewis's old clothes image. So how do you do kindness? And here's where I want to jump into 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, which says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Because I think those four things really help us see what the apostle means here by kindness. So the first thing is that when you're doing kindness, it means that you're soft towards others, especially where they're weak. You are fundamentally compassionate and not judgmental, even when a brother sins against you. So Paul writes, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. And that word describes deep feelings. Not commit with, with no feelings. It's literally the word for gut in the Bible. So it means that you love people from your guts. That you have strong emotional connections and the strong emotional reactions to the other person. The relationship is full of weeping and rejoicing. If they're rejoicing, you're rejoicing. If they're weeping, you're, you're weeping. But there are all this swirl of emotion because of the desire and the affection and, and the hope and the love that you feel for one another. Now, the opposite would be to be hard-hearted. And we'll get back to that in just a minute because that's a problem that we have to overcome. But Paul says this. He says, love believes all things. And when you're soft towards someone, you do. You believe all things because of your commitment to that person. You always believe the best about them. When they mess up, you assume good motives. You refuse to become adversarial. You're always looking for the good, not expecting the bad. And you give them the benefit of the doubt because you know you know, because you know one another. You have a story. You've walked with one another long enough to know that you're dealing with a person with a story and that part of the story is the ways that they've been sinned against in their life. And so compassion always, because we're all broken people. And it's our love for one another that puts us back together. So the first thing is softness. Kindness means softness with others, but secondly... Kindness means you're visionary with others because you've always, you're always believing the best about them. You see more. You see more than they can see. You see more for them. You see who they could be and not just who they are, and you remain committed to that vision of, of their ultimate future. So verse 29 in Ephesians 4 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. And he goes on, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now let me try to explain quickly because there's so much in those verses uh, and I don't have time for all of it. But the apostle mentions the day of redemption, which for believers is that future day when we will stand before God and we will finally be everything we're meant to be. You know that day's coming, right? Anybody excited? I can't wait. That there's a day that's coming when we will stand before God and it will not be this frightening thing that it would be for those outside of Christ, but for us, it will be the day when we will finally be everything we're meant to be, when all of the sin will fall away and the beauty God is making of us, which is now largely hidden, will finally shine forth. And the Bible says to look at you who are in Christ on that day would be like looking into the sun without sunglasses. We are going to be glorious. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to get us there. That's what that verse, verse 30 means. Now, kindness 
means that you have the same vision for people that the Spirit does. And you join him in his work of building them up until that beauty begins to come out ahead of time, even now. When you're unkind, see, when you deal with people harshly, you grieve the Spirit, Paul says. And that's, that means we have the ability to undo in others what God, by the Spirit, is trying to do in them. Especially with our words. Verse 29. And when we do that, we corrupt. Our words become corrupting words. Instead of building people up, we start to tear them down. We undo the work the Spirit is designed to do. And he, he doesn't like that very much. It grieves him. So it's so easy to treat one another as if we expect a finished product. You can do it in marriage. You can do it in friendship. And it causes a lot of disappointment. Tim and Kathy Keller have begun to tell singles, and their church was full of singles for years and years, to stop looking for the finished product in a spouse and start looking for a good piece of marble. And then through kindness, spend a lifetime chipping away until the beautiful thing that you see starts to take shape. Love hopes all things, 1 Corinthians 13.7 says. It has an eye for the future. It's motivated by what the other person is becoming. Listen. Listen, you can't live in the past in your friendships. It doesn't matter what's in the past. What matters is the future that is in front of you. And if you have a, a, a picture and, and, a, and a, a hopefulness towards that future, I don't like, I don't know whether to tell this story or not, but um, I talked to Jonathan about it this morning because it, it, I, uh, I'm, it, I'm more comfortable talking about my sins than I am about the times when I get it right. Isn't that twisted? And I don't want to draw attention to myself because I'm not a very good friend. Uh, that's the truth. Uh, but uh, maybe some of the best, I've had a few pretty good moments. And one of them, Jonathan and I were college roommates. I don't know if you knew, if y'all, many of you know that. And then we went to seminary together for years and we, he graduated. He, he somehow finished college and seminary in six years and it took me nine years to do them. So we kind of finished at the same time, even though he's younger than me. Uh, but the, the couple, first couple of years post-seminary for he and Jamie were kind of tough. And, uh, and they, had, they were missionaries and then came home, and, and he started teaching school. And, and there was a time where he wasn't sure whether or not he would ever be in ministry again. And so he asked me to take his library and hold out to it for him. And so I came over one day and found his library in his, in his garage. And he said, if you don't take those books, I'm going to throw them away. So just take them. I'm going to throw them away. It's probably not, you know, he was, kind of, he was kind of depressed and down. But in the books was his diploma from seminary. And... Uh, and I took the diploma, and I had it framed. And I gave it back to him, and I said, look, we're going to plant a church. And one day, you're going to have an office. And you're going to be a pastor in that church. Because he didn't believe it. And I had to believe it for him. So you've got to have a vision. Do you see? A vision for the future. To say, look, there's greatness in you. And you may not see it, but I do. That's a friend. Somebody who can have that kind of a vision for the greatness of the person that you can be. We're visionary with one another. Now, third, kindness means not only that you're soft and that you're visionary, but it means that you cover the sins of others because that's what people need the most. Paul says, verse 29 again, use your words to build others up that it may give grace. Do you see that there? And grace is the atmosphere in which people blossom. Ray Ortland likes to say, to say there's such a thing as too much grace is like saying there's such a thing as too much oxygen. And I think that's right. For every one time I say too much, see too much grace, there are a hundred examples of the too little. 
Ephesians 4.29 is clear. You build others up by giving grace, it says. Do you see that? Build them up by giving grace. So love bears all things. Kindness loves with eyes wide open. We're all sinners. There's no exception. And so the only way for us to enjoy a relationship one another, with one another is to be able to deal with the things the right way when they go bad as they inevitably will. And that's where forgiveness comes in. Be kind, Paul says, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. So kindness to sinners means forgiveness by necessity. There's no other way. There's a cost. Brotherly affection means you come into the relationship ready to pay and not to make the other person pay every time they mess up. Because every sin creates a debt, a relational and emotional debt. And forgiveness means that you pay the debt. You don't make the other person pay. You don't distance yourself emotionally from them. You don't complain about them to other people. You don't wish for them to, to, to hurt and for their life to fall apart. You bear the cost yourself by working through the pain with God in Christ to keep loving. And you don't wait until you're in the middle of things and then act surprised when forgiveness is required. This is Paul saying, go in with eyes wide open. You decide ahead of time because of your commitment to the other person that when they sin, your response is going to be grace every time. Grace. So that when it happens, you're ready. Because kindness covers. And isn't that what we need? Hello, you with me? Does anybody need grace? I need it like I need oxygen. And that's what kindness does. It's soft and it's visionary and it covers the sins of others. And then lastly, it refuses to give up. Love endures all things. You love with no exit strategy. But listen now, because I see this. Enduring doesn't mean you stay committed to the relationship, but you shut down emotionally because the commitment remains, right? But what can happen is, is you can say, God, we've been friends for so long, and you just remain committed, but the affection goes away. No, you got to keep fighting for the affection. you got to keep believing all things and keep hoping all things and keep bearing all things. No matter how much sin is there, you stay tenderhearted. You keep visionary eyes. You keep cheerfully covering sin, even though it's hard, even though it hurts. And that's why Peter and Paul both say there has to be supernatural power at work here, divine power. The life of God through, coursing through you because this is how God loves. And he's inviting us into his life. Now, before we move on, it's here, so I have to deal with it. Just to say, if you look at verse 29, the main point of application Paul makes here is that the way we do kindness the most or the way we do the opposite and the way we corrupt and grieve the spirit and undo the work he's doing is through our words. Words are powerful. Both the words you say and both the words you, and the words you don't say. Words build up and they tear down over and over again. The Bible warns about this. So just a couple of things. Just know what the Bible teaches us is that words of the heart speaking. The way you talk about people is the way you really feel about them. You undo whatever your heart might say with whatever your mouth says. Or you confirm with your mouth what your heart says. The way you talk about people is the way you really feel about them. So be careful. Think before you speak. Restrain your words. The text is pretty clear. Only speak words that build up. Only speak words that give grace. Can I say that again? Only speak words that build up. Only speak words that give grace. Gracious words are like a honeycomb 
sweetness to the soul and health to the body. We're memorizing this month. Can you imagine how the world would be different if we follow that advice? Can you imagine? Now, this kind of person is a world changer because they call out greatness in others that would otherwise have remained unknown. This last time we read through the book of Acts, I was so struck. You know, the heroes of Acts, men like Peter and Paul, um, who wrote most of our New Testament, who led the church as it really took on the Roman Empire. Uh, these guys are pretty impressive, but there's, a, there's, another, there's another character in the, in the book of Acts that kind of remains under, the, under the, the radar, but he is the real hero in my mind of the story. And it's not Peter, and it's not Paul, but it's Barnabas. And Barnabas was the first to reach out to Paul when nobody else would. He had visionary friendship toward Paul that, that, um, that many of the bigger names in the early church refused. The world would not have had Paul's ministry without Barnabas' kindness. The world was changed by his kindness before it was changed by Paul's theology because this kind of kindness could change the world. So that's what we're after. And I know you're thinking, holy cow, we're going to be here for a long time. That's the main part of what I wanted to say this morning. But too often we have to fight through the opposite. So let's move to the second point quickly. Paul says... Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So you have to be intolerant of these things in yourself. It's not okay to have all that towards a brother or sister. That's what the scripture is saying. We're supposed to have affection for one another. So put them away, Paul says. Just like when you find all the dirty stuff in the house and you gather it up and you take it off to the dump and you get rid of it. That's what he's saying. Get rid of it. Clean out the house and throw away all that dirty stuff. Because sin has a centrifugal effect. It creates alienation. We have to go to war against every small thing that would drive a wedge between us because small things become big things. That's what Paul is warning about. And so one way to understand what the Bible means by affection is the opposite. We see here, verse 31, instead of affection, he begins by talking about bitterness. You see that? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. And bitterness is what happens when someone sins against you or disappoints you. And, and in the pain, you're not able to be compassionate. You lose your visionary sight of the person and you begin to caricaturize them, which means you begin to accentuate the bad parts of who they are and you make that their defining characteristic. And so you become justified to withhold forgiveness because you want them to hurt the way that they've hurt you. And these are deadly habits. Every sin creates a debt. And you can pay the debt yourself. You can bear the cost of the other person's sin. That's forgiveness. It's hard. But it's absolutely necessary because the opposite is worse. And the opposite is you can make them pay. But the problem is, is that when you start making other people pay, you start charging interest too. And so every time there's, this, there's the original sin that creates the original debt. But then every time they do something that's the slightest bit wrong from that time forward, you add interest to the debt. So they can never pay it back. And the debt just keeps increasing. You get more and more upset and hurt and cynical. And then you become a person who is ready to believe evil and everything becomes spoiled. That's what, that's what the Bible means by that. It's the root of bitterness in Hebrews 12, 15. Because it begins to affect everything. And here's, here's the really scary thing. That, that imagery of root means that the bitterness itself can become your life source. You can live off the bitterness. It begins to fuel you. You interpret everything about the person or about people or about the world through your hurt. And you stop seeing things clearly. 
but it doesn't even stop there. It goes into all the other parts of your life, too, so that you begin, you begin a campaign of negativity and accusation. The world becomes full of injustice and wrong. And from bitterness, we're told in verse 31, comes malice. And that refers to a settled disposition of ill will towards others. You begin to hope bad things for people. You wish for them to hurt because they're evil because of the things they've done. And malice is the same root as Maleficent, who, of course, is the evil fairy in Disney's Sleeping Beauty who was not invited to the palace to celebrate the birth of the princess and is so offended and so hurt and so angered by that snub that she plots to kill the young princess and destroy the happiness of the king and queen. And even in the 2014 remake with Angelina Jolie, we see how betrayal that goes unforgiven can destroy a person. And here's where it gets really scary. Even more than just wishing bad things for someone, it can even morph into an active, intentional planning and executing evil towards another. And some of the ways we do this are listed here, verse 31, wrath and anger, which are feeling words like, like tenderhearted, but the opposite. They refer to a quick wick, hostility that solidifies into harshness and rudeness that just characterizes all of your interactions. Clamor, verse 31, which means brawling or violence, but with specific reference to words again. So this is you become a person that just goes around with red-faced, voiced rays, all caps, shouting through email at people. Violent words instead of gentle words or slander, which literally is the word blasphemy. And that stopped me in my tracks, that blasphemy, get it. Blasphemy is not just saying wrong things about God. Blasphemy is also saying wrong things about one another. So to let your anger boil over into evil words about an image of God is no different than evil words about God himself. These are serious things Paul mentions here. Sin is a great, great stain and evil. And so how can we, desoid, how can we avoid the disaster of verse 31? I'm out of time. But there's a very straightforward, very simple answer. And if you find yourself stuck in verse 31, and you want to become a person described in verse 32, then here's what you need. You need to have your heart melted by the reality of as Christ for you at the very end of these verses. Because that's the motivation for all of Christian morality. Christ as Christ loved you. Love as Christ loved you. Forgive as God and Christ forgave you. Be patient because God has been patient to you. Love the outsider because you are an outsider and God loved you as God in Christ for you, Paul says, Ephesians 4, 32. And I say you have to have your heart melted by that truth because Paul says our hearts are hard up there in verses 19, 18 and 19. That's our problem. Listen to the way he describes the unbelieving person. They're alienated from the life of God, verse 18. And that's the phrase we've keyed on all summer, partakers of the divine nature. That's the opposite, being alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them, this lack of knowledge, being out of touch with reality, due to the hardness of their heart, verse 18. So if you're a Christian, even in believing, the problem is you can become unbelieving. You can believe and not believe the gospel at the same time. So James Davison Hunter defines bitterness as a narrative of injury or perceived injury, a strong belief that one has been wronged. The root being a sense of entitlement so profound, listen, that the injury, whether real or perceived, becomes central to the person's identity. So the narrative, 
the bitter person lives by is that life is unjust and they are the victim. They've been wronged. And that becomes the way they view themselves and the way they view everybody else and the way they view the world. But that is incompatible with the gospel because here's the gospel message. The Christian gospel is the message that we're not victims, we're offenders. And God is a God of justice, but his justice was brought to bear upon Jesus on the cross and not on us. He justly punished our sins in Jesus so that he could justly forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus got what he did not deserve so that you and I could get what we do not deserve. God has paid the debt of our sin. We owed him the equivalent of the national debt. When people sin against us, it's a matter of a couple of bucks. And that massive work that God has done for us creates a new narrative. And here's the new narrative. History is being overseen by a God of absolute justice. Every wrong will be made right. It's not my job to prosecute all wrongs. It's not, it's not my job to do that. It's my job to cover them and to give grace. I don't have to worry about taking care of myself because there's a father who loves me and is arranging for my good. Right? I'm not a victim. I'm loved. That's who I am. That's what the gospel says to every one of us. The truest essence of our identity is that there's a God in heaven who has given his greatest treasure, his son, in love for us. We are loved. I'm loved. That's my identity. I'm loved. That's how I think about myself. And people who think about themselves that way, they love. See, God is Ephesians 4.20, excuse me. God is Ephesians 4.32 towards me, not Ephesians 4.31. It all comes down to that. What, what, which do you believe to be true? Jesus is the epitome of Ephesians 4.32. And his love, when you see it, when you, when you begin to see his tender-hearted, visionary, compassionate love for you, even in your sins, even at your very worst, when you see and when you experience, when you taste the steadfast love of the Lord that is better than life, it can melt your heart. His love can heal the wounds from all the other loves that have failed. And if you're living too much in verse 31 and not in verse 32, it could be because you're still... You're still looking to lesser loves for the strength and comfort and joy that only the God in Christ love can give. He is the friend you need. His affectionate heart for you can make you the kind of affectionate friend that we're describing, soft and visionary and forgiving and enduring so that you will become the kind of friend that makes people great. You will change the world by befriending people who will be world changers but only as we look to his love. What a friend we have in Jesus, the old hymn says, amen? His love is the love we need. His friendship is the friend we need. What a friend we have in Jesus. Let's look to him, amen? So let's pray. So Father, in this last moment, we, we confess to you the truth of the way that we can be hard-hearted and cynical towards one another. It's just so easy. It happens so easily because our hearts are still so skewed. Our hearts are still so sick. Even though you've done this work of renovation on us, uh, the work continues. And so we so easily fall back into disrepair and, and become hard-hearted when we are too afraid to live tenderhearted, when we're too afraid to really give our hearts away and put them out there because of the way we've been hurt in the past. We confess that. And we ask that you would renew our courage and our strength. 
and our humility and our passion towards one another, but not because we would find some friend that would finally be for us or that we would look to the person who's just a, a perpetual disappointment and we would say, if you could just get your act together, then I would be okay. No, we would turn away from making an idol out of the loves of people in our lives and we would turn to you and we would see the great love that you have for us in Jesus and that it would be that love, that great love for us displayed upon the cross that would truly melt our hearts so that we could not but help be people who look to one another and long to give away the love that we have given because it's so stirring in us. Oh, would that be the case? And so in this moment, help us. Soften our hearts and help us to sing. And as we sing, to sing ourselves into believing the truth the song says and in believing it that we might reach out and begin to love in a way that would honor and glorify you and bear fruit in the lives of others. Because you say it's to your glory that we bear fruit. And so we need you to work on us in this moment, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And so out of that comes a certain way of living life. People ask me all the time, you know, how can I, how can I be, uh, what can I do in the church? How can I be a blessing? What, what's the work you'd give me to do? And, and I would say to you, find somebody who needs a friend to be a friend. Volunteer, right, at, at FX. Find a young mom, if you're, an, a, you know, an older mom who's just getting killed raising little kids and saying, look, I'm going to be a friend. Find somebody and say, I'm going to put my love upon you and I, I expect nothing from you in return because that's the way that God's loved me. And you can do that because of all the promises that he makes. We can go from this place to be that kind of people because our lives are so grounded in the love that he has shown for us in Jesus. And that's what these words mean. This is the promise. This is the, this is the promise of God's heart for you and all that you're sent now to do. So receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.